Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. I hope you all had a great and relaxing holiday with homemade baked goods, lit candles and lots of glug. Due to some technical issues that I won't bother you with, the podcast had a longer than expected holiday hiatus, but now we're back in full force again, ready to take on 2023. Last time, we talked about the Scandinavian settlements in Greenland, and more specifically, about how they were abandoned in the second half of the 14th century. We, well mostly I, also speculated a bit about why it happened. Today, we're focusing on Scandinavia again, at least mostly. We will inevitably talk a bit about things going on south of the Baltic Sea as well, because the topic of today's episode is the German Merchant League that dominated trade in Scandinavia and the Baltic Sea region during the Middle Ages. This league controlled a significant part of the economy of Denmark, Sweden and Norway, and such financial power will almost inevitably translate into political power as well. Episode 55, The Hansa. The origins of the Hanseatic League were modest and are partly lost in the mist of time. It most likely started off sometime in the early Middle Ages as an association that protected the rights and interests of North German merchants and who organized protection for traders traveling along the dangerous medieval sea lanes where the long arm of the law tended to be much too short, and whoever wanted to travel unmolested had better be able to protect themselves, especially if they were traveling with valuable cargo. But the Hansa grew, and when it was at its peak, it basically had a monopoly on international trade in Scandinavia and the Baltic Sea region. Hanseatic merchants traded as far south as Portugal and Venice in the Mediterranean, and the Republic of Novgorod, that is old Viking Holmgård to you and me, in the east. Even though we don't know for sure how many cities and towns were members of the Hansa, there were approximately 70 to 80 full members. Among these were cities like Lübeck, Stralsund, Rostock, Danzig, today Gdansk, and Königsberg, today Kaliningrad, Riga, Reval, today Tallinn, and Visby. In addition, there were at least another 100 cities and towns that were associated with the League in one way or another without being members. Already in the mid-13th century, the Hansa was already consolidated in practice, but the official establishment would come later, in the 14th century, at least partly as an attempt by the League to find a solution to the financial difficulties the member cities found themselves in in the wake of the plague. But by then, the drive towards formalizing the League had been growing for some time abroad and had been previously resisted by the German cities, primarily because it was actually forbidden to form such an association of cities within the Holy Roman Empire, to which all the leading German Hansa cities belonged. And since the German traders didn't want to provoke the emperor unnecessarily, the Hansa developed gradually and discreetly, trying to stay under the imperial radar. But it did develop, eventually turning into a state within a state, both in the Holy Roman Empire and abroad. Through its dominance, it would eventually set the regional standard not only for trade, but also for the formation of guilds, city councils, urban development and law. The Low German language spoken in Lübeck and the other leading Hansa cities became the lingua franca of Northern Europe at this time. At the time, 
Most states, not least the Scandinavian kingdoms, were still relatively weak, poor and unorganized. The Hansa was anything but. It was strong, rich and structured. The members of the Hanseatic League would meet for diets, a kind of parliaments, where Hansa business was discussed and decided upon. This business was often political or financial, but could also be military in nature. The League protected merchants and their interests wherever and whenever they were threatened, as well as furthered their economic interests. The League had teeth, albeit not a standing army. But it was rich, and if you were rich in the Middle Ages, there was no problem finding plenty of swords for hire. To be a member of the Hanseatic League, a city would have to pay dues. It was also mandatory to participate solidarily in wars sanctioned by the League, either by sending soldiers or contributing money. If a city didn't participate, didn't pay its dues, or didn't comply with the decisions of the Diet, it could be excluded from the League permanently or for a period of time. This was a devastating blow, since an excluded town found itself cut off from its trading connections and had to fend for itself, trying to find someone willing to trade with them, while also defending its merchants from pirates and other dangers. The center of the Hanseatic world was the Baltic Sea, and the basis for the League's power was its virtual monopoly on trade in that region, including Scandinavia. The northern German city of Lübeck eventually became the leading force in the Hansa, the diets usually met there, and between diets, the city council of Lübeck ran the day-to-day -day business of the league. The diet usually met around Pentecost, or seven weeks after Easter. By then, the weather tended to be good enough for representatives from northern towns around the Baltic Sea to be able to make it to the diet. The island of Gotland, with its main port, Visby, was of central importance to the Hansa from the very beginning, located as it was in the middle of the east-west trading route through the Baltic Sea. Being important to the Hanseatic League and its trade was a mixed blessing for the smaller cities, such as Visby. The German traders soon came to dominate such places, uh, running the show and shutting the locals out, primarily from trade, but sometimes even from politics in their own cities. And even where the League's members only monopolized the trade, they made sure to land themselves privileges that stacked the deck against any competitors foolish enough to try to get a foothold on Hanseatic territory. During the 14th century, the power of the Hanseatic League grew steadily in Scandinavia, and eventually the League wielded economic power that the Scandinavians couldn't compete with or defend themselves against. Soon enough, the League started to meddle in Scandinavian affairs, especially in those affairs that affected the Hansa's own interests. We've already seen this in previous episodes, not least in episode 48, A New Dawn, where we looked at the Danish king Valdemar Dawn and his attempts to assert Danish control over the waters of the southern Baltic Sea, and how this brought him into conflict with the Hanseatic League. Danish waters had been of keen interest to German merchants for as long as anyone could remember. The herring used to appear in great numbers all the way through the Ersund Strait, down the coast of Scania and to the island of Rügen and the Pomeranian coast. This was swimming gold for the fishermen in the region, since fish was in high demand in medieval Europe. Salted herring even became a commodity in which a lot of people in the region paid their taxes. The largest and most important herring market was held in southwestern Scania every year. 
It was an event that not only attracted people interested in buying or selling herring, but since everyone went to this market, other merchants with non-herring wares to sell would also attend and do good business there. As if the herring wasn't enough, Denmark was also important for the Hanseatic League as a source of grain and cattle, not to mention the country's strategic location effectively functioning as a lock on the Baltic Sea, since the Danes controlled both shores of the Ersen Strait in the Middle Ages. They could, at least theoretically, block access to and from the Baltic Sea if they wanted to. This was a feature of the kingdom's geography later Danish kings would derive considerable benefit from. The Danes were wary of the ambitions of the Hansa, and did what they could to curb the League's power and influence in Denmark. This meant undermining the League at every turn and encouraging and favoring its competitors in order to create a freer market that Denmark can benefit from. But the League was a formidable opponent, not least since it controlled some of the most important import items that the Danes couldn't live without, most notably salt. That meant that the Danes couldn't afford to kick the Germans out. The Hansa also knew very well how to use the internal conflicts between the three Scandinavian kingdoms to its own benefit. The League would side with this kingdom and then that, seemingly always coming out on top, but also constantly fearing what would happen if the Scandinavians were to join forces against the Hansa. King Valdemar Don may have been a staunch opponent of Hanseatic interests in Denmark, but the League had been involved in fighting against the Danes long before he acceded to the throne. Already his great-great-grandfather, Valdemar the Victorious, had met Hanseatic troops in battle in 1227. The Danes lost that time, and the military misfortunes would continue for some time. In 1249, the League even sacked Copenhagen and plundered the surrounding area in Zealand. That time, as so often, the conflict was about fishing rights in Scania. Despite his predecessor's failures, Valdemar Don was set on breaking the power of the Hanseatic League over the Danish economy, just like he had wrested the land itself back from various German aristocrats. Needless to say, this didn't win him many friends in Lübeck, and when he went ahead and occupied the island of Gotland and took control over Visby, that crucial Hanseatic port in the Baltic Sea, the League decided something needed to be done to put the Danish king back in his place. In episode 48, A New Dawn, we already discussed this, so I'm not going to go into detail here. If you've forgotten how the Hansa first allied themselves with King Magnus Eriksson of Sweden and Norway against Valdemar Don, sacking Copenhagen again and bringing the city's church bells back to Lübeck in triumph, only to later switching side and signing a treaty helping the Danish king to regain Scania in exchange for far-reaching trading privileges there, then you can always go back and listen to that episode to refresh your memory. The peace treaty signed between Denmark and the League in Stralsund in 1370 left the Hansa stronger and richer than ever before. Valdemar Don had failed in his attempt to curb the League. Instead, they now controlled Scania for 15 years, and all non-Hanseatic merchants were barred from the all-important herring market there. But at the same time, it did also put a target on the League's back, a target Scandinavian kings would continue to shoot at from time to time, determined to break the power of the German traders. The situation in Sweden was slightly different from that of Denmark, 
As Sweden was taking shape and coalescing into a cohesive kingdom in the 13th century, its leaders saw the Hanseatic League as a potential boon for the underdeveloped Swedish economy. The Hansa sent representatives to the coronation of King Valdemar Birgersson in 1251, and at the same time they also took the opportunity to sign an agreement with Jarl Birger, who, as you may remember from episode 49, was the king's father and the real power behind the throne. According to this agreement, Hanseatic merchants could now trade toll-free in Sweden, and they were also given the right to settle freely wherever they liked in the kingdom. At the time, Swedish towns were small and unimpressive. Stockholm had only just been founded, and it wasn't much more than a fortified trading post on an island where the Lake Mälaren met the Baltic Sea. But as a result of the agreement with the Hansa, German merchants started to move in, boosting the urban development of Stockholm as well as a handful of other towns. This also meant that the new German inhabitants came to dominate the budding Swedish cities, such as Stockholm, Kalmar and Nyköping on the western shore of the Baltic Sea, and Turku, Porvo and Viborg, all Swedish town at the, towns at the time, on the eastern shore. From mainland Sweden, the Hansa bought and exported copper and iron. In many cases, they even secured their rights to the mines themselves, cutting out the Swedes completely from this lucrative trade. Soon enough, basically all imports and exports to and from Sweden were in German hands. That included not only metal, but also furs, skins, wood, potash, pitch and tar. Even granite and limestones were exported. The most important port in Sweden, as far as the Hanseatic League was concerned, was, of course, Visby, on the island of Gotland. Already in the 12th century, when German merchants were starting up trade in Novgorod, Visby became an important stopping point along the route across the Baltic Sea. Merchants from Visby had been trading with Novgorod, aka Holmgård, ever since the Viking Age, and merchants from Gotland were well established there when the Germans first arrived, looking to shove a foot in the door of the Russian market. When the Hanseatic League was forming, Visby initially played a prominent role, and for a time the League's treasury was even housed in one of the city's many churches, Our Lady Mary of the Germans, to be exact. But Lübeck soon overshadowed Visby, and the city lost much of its power and wealth in the 14th century. First, the Danes under Valdemar Don extorted vast quantities of gold and silver from the inhabitants during the 1361 invasion, and later the city was severely damaged by fire. And that wasn't rock bottom. Visby would fall deeper still, and even became a hub for pirates in the Baltic Sea. But that's a story we'll leave for next episode. Already in 1161, so almost a hundred years before Jarl Birger did so, the Norwegian king signed a trade deal with the Hanseatic League. That first deal stipulated that the Germans weren't allowed to winter in Norway, but were only allowed to trade there from the beginning of May until the middle of September. But by the middle of the 13th century, many German merchants spent the winter in Norway and primarily in Bergen all the same. This meant that they could purchase goods during the winter and ship it off to European markets earlier in the spring. The Germans were happy to spend more and more time in Bergen, but they refused to pay any taxes or even tithe, claiming that they were merely there temporarily. This went on for a while until King Håkon Håkonsson 
had enough and decided that any foreigner who rented a house in Bergen for 12 months or more was to be considered an inhabitant for tax purposes. The Hanseatic League merchants weren't happy about this or the fact that they had to abide by Norwegian laws in Norway. But if they wanted to stay and trade in Bergen, they had no other choice than to accept King Haakon's conditions. For now. Just like in Sweden, the League had been allowed to trade in all Norwegian ports and markets. And even though there were some Hanseatic activities around the Oslo Fjord, for instance in Tönsberg and Oslo, the Germans generally preferred to focus their attention on Bergen. I trust you're all familiar with Bergen and the city's importance by now, since it keeps popping up on this show, but I'll spell it out once again for emphasis. Bergen was such an important port because of its location on the west coast with easy access to northern Norway, Norway's possessions in the North Atlantic, the British Isles and the continent. The port itself was also excellent. It was always ice-free, something you can't take for granted in Scandinavia, and something of a novelty for merchants used to the Baltic Sea. The port itself is also deep, so even the largest ships could dock right in the city center, often just a few meters from the warehouses and storerooms. The cherry on the top was the fact that Bergen was surrounded by mountains, protecting the port from Atlantic storms. The main commodity traded in Bergen was fish, more specifically cod from northern Norway. In the pre-Protestant medieval Europe, every Christian was either Catholic or Orthodox, and they were all expected to observe all the various fast days as well as Lent in the weeks leading up to Easter. During these days, it was forbidden to consume meat, which meant that people ate a lot of fish. Just like the Danish herring, cod from Norway was a staple ware throughout Catholic Europe. Thanks to the lucrative fish trade, Bergen became so important to the Hansa that they opened a contour in the city sometime around the year 1360, so a few years after the plague had struck Norway. The Hansa had a handful of these contours in Europe. The oldest one had been established in Novgorod in 1259, and later contours were also opened in London and in Bruges. A contour was per a permanent settlement for Hanseatic merchants, their families and businesses, which basically served as a Hanseatic exterritorial enclave. In the Bergen contour, Hansa laws and customs took precedence over the local laws, and the German merchants guarded their privileges jealously, making sure that no non-Hanseatic traders would be able to do business in Bergen. Just like in Sweden, all export and import were in the hands of the Hansa. They would export dried cod from Norway and import grain from the continent, grain needed to feed the Norwegian population who lived in a part of Europe that didn't lend itself naturally to agriculture. The contour in Bergen was known as Tyskebryggen, or the German pier. The name made sense since the contour was located in the center of the city right along the port. This area had been used for trading already before the Germans arrived, but the Hanseatic merchants gradually squeezed out the local merchants, taking over the port and achieving a Hanseatic monopoly on international trade in Bergen. The houses along the pier that gave the contour its name were long and narrow and built from wood. The narrow front of the house contained stores and offices on the bottom floor, with the German merchants and their families living above. At the back were large cellars and warehouses, and during the spring and fall these were full of dried cod bound for the European markets. When the fish arrived, 
The workmen in the contour had busy days preparing the fish and sorting it by size and quality. The preparation was done by more junior members of the contour, but the crucial task of appraising the fish was done by the merchant's deputy. The contour was a strictly hierarchical society governed by a council of 18 members, two aldermen and one secretary who had to be a doctor of law. The council dealt with financial issues, but also with legal cases and disciplinary matters. Discipline was harsh, and the rules were clear. Fraternizing with the locals was forbidden, and a post-dinner curfew was strictly enforced. At night, guards with dogs patrolled the enclave, making sure that no one tried to sneak out or in. All the unmarried men who worked at the contour were expected to be celibate. The fear was that if members of the colony were to settle down and marry a Norwegian woman, he might divulge Hansa's secrets to the Norwegians that would endanger the future of the contour. It's not a trivial thing to demand a decade of celibacy from young men, and we know for a fact that not everyone could live up to it, despite the guards and the dogs, because wills have been found in Lübeck archives where merchants who once lived at the contour on the German pier named their Norwegian partners, and sometimes their children, as beneficiaries of their wills. As I mentioned earlier, the Hansa had agreed to King Haakon Haakonsson's terms, but only because they had to in order to remain in Bergen. They had no intention of keeping to those conditions if they had a chance to get out of them. And eventually, they did. As their influence grew in the 14th century, the League gradually started to apply pressure on the Norwegians in Bergen, taking over the city little by little. The merchants of the Bergen Contour were quick to exploit the situation as soon as they had gained the upper hand. As I already noted, they forced all Norwegians out of the port area and forced them to give up on foreign trade altogether. At the same time, more and more Germans moved in. Merchants, clerks, apprentices, sailors, workmen and others. At its peak, some 3,000 Germans lived on the German pier in Bergen. If you take into account that the total population of the city was approximately 10,000, it's easy to understand how dominating the Hanseatic presence was. The contour crest, symbolizing the Hanseatic presence and control over Bergen's economic life, sported half an imperial eagle and half a crowned cod. Heraldry is a beautiful thing. These contour merchants refused to pay local city taxes or recognize Norwegian legal authorities. Whenever they ran into trouble, the League backed them up. They paid a reduced customs fare, and they had all the rights of citizens, even though they also claimed all the rights of foreigners as well. They interfered in local and national politics, favoring those who favored them. The League forced the Norwegians to have all ships bringing goods down the coast from northern Norway to stop in Bergen. There, the Hanseatic merchants had first refusal on any and all goods, making sure that they always could lay their hands on the best wares that were on offer. For example, the fish market in Bergen was located in the port area, and it could only be reached by going down the shoemaker's alley leading through the contour. On market days, the Germans would close off the shoemaker's alley and wouldn't let any Norwegian pass through down to the market until they themselves had bought all the fish they wanted, leaving the leftovers for the locals. If diplomacy and backroom dealings weren't enough to get what they wanted, the merchants at the contour weren't above turning to violence. When, in the mid-1400s, 
the local authorities entertained the idea of resisting the imperious Hansa. More than a hundred armed Germans stormed the city hall. A few years later, another mob of German merchants chased the anti-Hansa governor of Bergen and his retinue out of the city. The governor took shelter in a monastery where he barricaded himself in a tower. The Germans proceeded to set fire to the whole monastery, burning the governor alive. Afterward, the Hanseatic League paid for the reconstruction of the monastery, but they refused to pay the court-ordered compensation to the relatives of the murdered governor. And since the king at the time was deeply in debt to the League, he didn't insist on them paying, literally letting them get away with murder. But nothing lasts forever, not even the Hanseatic stranglehold on Bergen. In the 16th century, the power and influence of the Hansa was waning and the contours across Europe were closing one after the other. The contour in Bergen was still going strong though, until Christopher Valkendorf moved into Bergenhus castle as the new governor in 1556. He was eager to break the power of the contour and he seized on the opportunity offered by a series of unsolved murders at a local brothel to abolish many of the Hanseatic privileges in Bergen forcing them to suffer the indignity of abiding by Norwegian law from 1560 onward. The merchants were given the choice of swearing an oath of fealty to the king or to return to Germany. 59 merchants chose to leave Bergen, but the rest declared their loyalty to the king and accepted to be integrated into the Norwegian burger population. Even though the contour remained, its position was much weaker from now on and its monopoly on trade with northern Norway was lost. The contour actually lived on until the 18th century, long after the Hanseatic League had ceased to exist. The old Hanseatic neighborhood of the German peer actually still remains in Bergen, even though the word German has been dropped, and it's now only known as the peer. The name change was decided on on May 25, 1945, at the first meeting of Bergen City Council after Norway had been liberated from five years of German occupation during the Second World War. Visiting Bergen today, you get a clear idea of what the contour must have looked like in the Middle Ages, even though many of the buildings are reconstructions, since a number of fires have ripped through the tightly packed wooden edifices over the centuries. The last major fire that devastated the neighborhood occurred in 1955. As a part of the reconstruction efforts, a thorough archaeological excavation was carried out, and it uncovered something quite interesting, some 670 runic inscriptions, not from the Viking Age, but from the Middle Ages. Thanks to this find, scholars have revised their theories on when the runes were replaced by the Latin alphabet in Scandinavia. Before this find, the common assumption was that the switch from one writing system to the next took place more or less simultaneously with the switch from the old religion to Christianity. But the 1955 finds showed that runes were in widespread use, at least in Bergen, in parallel to the Latin alphabet for hundreds of years after Norway had been Christianized. Some of the inscriptions were from the 14th century. That means that Norwegians in Bergen were at least sometimes still using runes at the time that the Hanseatic League was establishing its power base in the city. Pretty cool, if you ask me. The Hansa may have retained its grip over Bergen until the mid-16th century, but in the rest of Scandinavia and the Baltic Sea region, the League started to slip already in the early 1400s. One of the first serious blows came when the Baltic Sea herring changed its migration pattern 
and started to spawn in the North Sea instead, off the coast of the Netherlands. This was doubly bad news for the Hansa, since the league not only lost an important source of income, but that it lost it to the Dutch, which were their competitors. And the Dutch were quick to seize upon the unexpected opportunity, laying the groundwork for their own empire. For decades during the mid-1400s, the League and the Dutch would fight each other, but that, as they say, is the topic for another podcast. Another blow to the Hansa was the discovery of the New World in the late 1400s and the opening up of new trade routes by the Spanish and the Portuguese. All of this rendered the Hanseatic League less profitable, and the strength of the League had always been its profitability for its members. Once it was no longer good business to be a member, cities started to abandon the League. Without a standing army, a clear set of laws, and no overarching ideology beyond making money, it was tricky to stop the disintegration once it had started. Politically, things also changed, with states growing stronger, and the rise of Protestantism meant herring and cod were in less demand, as ritual fasting became less of a thing in Europe. The more modest Protestant churches also caused a decrease in the demand for candle wax, which Hanseatic merchants had brought from Russia for generations. So the Baltic and Scandinavian trade routes were all of a sudden not as valuable as they had once been. Of course, it didn't help that some Hanseatic cities had become Protestants, whereas others had remained Catholic. The wars of religion that tore Germany apart in the 16th and 17th centuries would prove to be challenging to the League. Ultimately, all these factors together caused the League's final demise. But before we get that far, the Hansa still has an important part to play in Scandinavian commerce and politics. The Hanseatic League will show up again in our story, since its days of meddling in Scandinavian affairs are far from over. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you can rate podcasts nowadays. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Havamal, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as wake up early if you want another man's land or life, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you crave more content, at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.